0: Welcome to the Liar Liar podcast. This is series two, Murderous Moncaster. A set of horror stories and folklore from Cumbria, which can be enjoyed at home as individual episodes, or downloaded from cumbriansongs.co.uk and listened to whilst walking around the grounds of Moncaster Castle in the western fringes of the English Lake District. If you're listening at Moncaster Castle, make your way to the start of the terrace and listen to the first story as you walk toward Mary Bragg's summer house, and perhaps take a seat in there. Episode one, Mary Bragg. Are not these woods and open spaces more free from peril and trifles than the walls of the castle and its courtyard? here a man who lends his ear finds tongues in trees books in the running brooks and sermons in stones Lal Mary Bragg aye she was a tidy young thing worked as housekeeper to Grice the Parson down at Holmrook the only thing she ever did wrong were to have affection for John Pike footman at the castle here he was a good looking lad mind had plenty of the lasses after him like Lyle Miss Littledale, one of the staff here. Ah, she was a piece of work. Cannier than devil and twice as evil. So looking to ward off John's other admirers, Littledale persuades these two brothers she knows to go round, scaring them off. On a eat when the Grices were away, these brothers knocked on door of Parsonage Farm and tells Mary that if she wants to see John Pike alive, she must go with them, sharpish, as John's on his deathbed. Axing for her. Well, she goes In their cart, behind two osses. And then they pass the main gate to the castle and keep on. Well, Mary knows summat's up, so she begs them to stop. They pull up and drag her off into the woods. Now, what is he that builds stronger than either the mason, the shipwright or the carpenter? The gallows maker. For that frame outlives a thousand tenants. And a gallows they've made. A crude rope slung over a branch and up and up they hoist Mary by her neck. Letting her down again so she can just catch her breath. And they say, tell us you'll stay away from John and we'll let you go. But they've miscalculated how much fright her lalas can take. And hanging somewhere up there, Mary begins to pass over to that undiscovered country, from whose born no traveller returns, puzzles the will, and makes us rather bear those ills we have than fly to others that we know not of. Half here and half there, Mary suddenly becomes aware of a great many things, ancient letters, spells, and the names of her two tormentors. She shouts their names, and the older brother panics. He pulls a pistol out and shoots her in the face. The rope is loosed and the brothers run. Mary drops down, but is not yet dead. The gunshot hit only the side of her face, claiming her left eye as its prize and some of her cheekbone. She crawls into the graveyard, and with ink from her bloody socket, she marks the names of those two villains on the back of a gravestone. She was found the next day by Joe Brockbank, who summoned Old Beatman, the gardener, and Doubleday, the gamekeeper. They thought they'd be implicated, so they dumped her body in Eskbeck. She was found a few weeks later, floating in the river, but her remains were badly treated by the eels nibbling and the ghastly herons pecking. It was impossible to say how she met her end, but even Grice the parson believed she may have been the designer of her own death and would not afford her a Christian burial. Give me leave, here lies the water. Good. Here stands the woman. Good. If the woman go to this water and drown herself, it is, will she, nil she, she goes. ye that. But if the water come to her and drown her, she drowns not herself. She that is not guilty of her own death, shortens not her own life. Mary's ghost was often seen in the woods. They say that a ghost is a soul that cannot settle doomed for a certain term to walk the night and for the day confined to fast in fires, till the foul crimes done in her days of nature are burnt and purged away but that she is forbid to tell the secrets of her prison house, she could a tale unfold whose lightest word would harrow upon thy soul, freeze thy young blood, make thy two eyes like stars start from their spheres, thy knotted and combined locks to part, and each particular hair to stand on end, like quills upon the fearful porpentine, the fearful porpentine. Believing that Mary's ghost resided by day in the tree from which she was hanged, the good folk of Moncaster Castle chopped it down and built this summer house so that poor Mary's spirit might finally have a place to be comfortable. And with blood and spit and shaking bones, here endeth the sermon of the stones. By my fingers and thumbs, this story is done. Step out of Mary Bragg's summer house and walk behind it. Don't go into the graveyard, but take the path toward Church Wood, bearing left when you reach a stream. Listen to the following episode as you walk. Episode 2. The Hag of Hawkshead. Recounted by Reverend George Park, Vicar of Hawkshead, in 1852... And poeticised by Harold Moreland in Lakeland Ballads, 1972. I am the Vicar of Hawkshead, sir, and given to speak in true. This thing happened in the year of 1852. I am no crank imaginer any more than you. One cold March night, by Waterside, I was trudging home to bed. I'd been to comfort a widowed soul whose man was lately dead, and none but simple Christian thoughts hymned in my quiet head. And as I walked, I saw a head, a countrywoman's shape, snugged, it seemed, in bonnet and scarf and a dark enveloping cape. A good five minutes, my eyes marked, that dark, firm, plodding shape. A rare cold night, I said, But the moon sheds a very welcome light. God speed you home, good soul, I said. Good night, I said. Good night. But never a word, she did reply, nor gave the merest sign. Strange, I thought. I wonder why. Folk know this voice of mine. I turned, but heaven send me, grace. This was no woman kind. No human feature marked that face or none that I could find. Two gaping holes instead of eyes. Now black, now red with flame. Like little hellpits were alight with the devil's hide-eye, And the skin, if worthy of that name, was smooth fish-belly white. I shut my eyes with sudden dread and uttered a cry of prayer. I lacked the power or I'd have fled but forced my eyes to stare. On what? Mere space. No form. Instead, a stench in the cold night air. As if a body, two months dead lay still, unburied there. Then the road was bare in the cold moonlight, with nothing alive to show, and only the track of my own two feet printed in the snow. By my fingers and thumbs, this story is done. Find yourself a comfortable spot to linger in Churchwood. Under the red leaves of the Japanese maple tree is ideal for the next story. Episode 3 The Smuggler's Headstone This is the tale of a smuggler's wife who hated brandy. For all the wealth it had brought them, the good times and parties it had made, the merest whiff of it could make her close her eyes and tighten the muscles of her back. And it wasn't because brandy Or smuggling it had taken her husband's life. Oh no. Thomas Stowell died of gunshot wounds at Bonas on Solway having tried to outrun the customs men. He was buried in an unmarked grave and when Nora found it she spoke to the deacon about erecting a headstone. He advised her that Thomas had gone to the grave harbouring a great many sins that he hadn't confessed and the only thing that could be done now would be to make sure the headstone was as pure as could be in substance and intention. She returned to their native Isle of Man and spent three years helping the poor. With honest money, she purchased a headstone of slate hewn from the highest quarry of Snayfell, the Snowy Mountain, and had it shipped to Maryport. From Maryport, she carried the slate on her back, wrapped in rags. Rags that had become salt encrusted on the crossing. And as she walked, it rubbed. And it rubbed her back. Wet, rough, and salty. Blistering, bursting, bloody. From Maryport, past Allenby, Salter Moss, Morbury, Beckfoot, Bitterlees, Skinburness, Skin Burness, and on, and on to Boness on Solway. When she arrived at Bowness, some smuggler friends helped her with the stone and then tended to her wounds, dabbing brandy on them as antiseptic. And that's the reason why the smuggler's wife hated brandy, as she drank it down to numb the pain of her red, raw back. By my fingers and thumbs, this story is done. Make your way out of Church Woods towards Churchgate Drive. Take care if any cars are coming. Step inside the wooden porch at the entrance to the graveyard. Then listen to the next story. Episode 4 The Like Gate. The Like Gate is a place where mourners can keep the body company overnight before burial and where they can stay on guard against body snatchers. The only other time this light gate is used is on the eve of St. Luke, the 17th of October. It's tradition that the men of the area come here every year, as the witch in our approaches they take longer and deeper drafts on their hip flasks and pipes, mindful not to be too inebriated, but drunk enough to keep the fear down. As the bells chime, they witness a procession of the spirits of those people from round here who will die within the year. Each spirit bears the wounds of how they will die. Neighbours, perhaps relatives, sometimes lovers, and even themselves. This yan neat, this yan neat, every needs and all. Fire and fleet and candle lit, and Christ receive thy soul. When thou from hence away art past, every night and all, to Moncaster thou comest at last, and Christ receive thy soul. Being respectful of the graves around you, find a free patch of grass close to the bell tower. This is the tale of Blind Charlie and the Death Light. He was sexton at St. John's in the Vale and had dug the resting place. For a man whose name is not in this tale Who had run his mortal race He was bringing the coffin on his horse To lie in the church all night A task you may know that takes two hands To keep the load dead right But as he halted at the first fell gate Wondering what could happen Slowly, quietly, as he waited The gate swung clear, wide open and not another soul was there. Just blind Charlie, the horse and the coffin. And that's not the strangest thing he saw before he went blind. A year later he saw a blue orb hovering about three foot off the ground and coming his way. It was a death light. A deed leet. A corpse candle. When someone dies, a faint... Blue flame will come from them and make its way along the death route to the departed's final resting place. It may travel back and forth between them depending on how long before the funeral it is. Charlie was stood in front of one of these death lights. He blocked its path and for a few minutes the two of them stood quite still. Charlie got the feeling he should move and when he did the orb continued on its root, and disappeared, down, into a vacant patch in the graveyard. When the funeral came, the horse pulling the hearse stood stock still at that very same spot, and waited for just as long as the orb had done, before moving on. If you know about it, you know how to harness it. There was a farmer went missing round here, and Folk took it in turns to climb up Moncaster Fell for the night to keep watch for his death light. Up to the church it went and back again. Not to his house, but back to his dying place. And that's how we found his body. Walk to the north side of the church. You'll find a blocked up door. the devil's door. Aye, this is the devil's door. Commonly called so because it's here at the north of the church, the dark side of the church. Angels are bright still, though the brightest fell. And where did the good lord stick him? Here, where the sun never shines. The door that used to stand here served its purpose for the living. Bridal parties would enter this way and leave through to the door, into the light. Same for christenings. One day, some daft deacon left this door wide open. Then, it was the time of night, that the graves all gaping wide, every one lets forth his sprite in the churchway paths to glide. This door let the very devil through. Thankfully, I was sleeping on a graveyard over there, having not made it all the way home from the pub. The season had turned frosty, so thankfully we had sacks of salt for the paths, and despite being several sheets to the wind, I flung the salt, handful after handful, into the devil's eyes to blind him. I pushed him back, back and slammed door in his fiasse. I slept there until dawn, and then set about bricking it up. You might have heard the saying, you make a better door than a window. Well, this door made a better wall than a door. But I needed every ounce of that salt, mind. Which is why we have the saying, spill salt, spill sorrow. If you spill any salt, you must throw some over your shoulder, otherwise the devil might take his chance on breaking through. Not everyone who dies is afforded a grave. Not everyone who is buried is human not everyone who is buried is buried in one piece not everyone who is buried is dead by my fingers and thumbs this tale is done you'll now need to make your way out of the churchyard and towards the castle Stop when you get to the junction of Churchyard Drive and Clocktower Drive, where you'll be standing opposite the bird cages. Pause this audio tour until you get there. Episode 5: Moriarty. Arthur and Morris, two young nephews circling around their dying aunt. Anne Fell, who lived to be a ripe age, not far from here. She couldn't stand the conniving pair, who were, unfortunately, her only living relatives. Spoilt as children and privileged in adulthood, she despised the selfish, cruel creatures the boys had become, and yet had little choice but to include them in her will. Mrs Fell had simple tastes, and only the occasional foreign visitor gave away the secret of her fortune, made on the stock markets of the Far East and the Americas, assisted by a certain amount of Lake District witchcraft. With only a few days of life left, she put her witchcraft to one last use, hoping that Arthur and Morris would see the error of their ways, but, alas, the boys failed to redeem themselves, and their comeuppance was to be a destiny of learning to share. Arthur woke one morning feeling terribly claustrophobic, like he was bound in a a feathery quilt, no, a a, a sleeping bag, but one that somebody had peed in. Oh, it stunk. He soon realised he wasn't alone. No, in that feathery sleeping bag there was another person. Who's that? Arthur? It's me, Morris. The selfish pair? had been magically cast into the same body. But it wasn't a human body. It was something far more fitting. It was the body of a vulture. And they were destined to share it forevermore. When the inheritance wasn't claimed, Mrs Fowl's money was left to several animal charities by default, including the Owl Centre here on the Proviso that they would look after her pet, a hooded vulture called Morris Arthur, or... Moriarty, for short. So when you look at the birds in these cages, don't be tempted to ask what they are. Rather, you should be inquiring who they are. And by my fingers and thumbs, this tale is done. Now walk towards the entrance of the castle, along Clock Tower Drive, stopping when you get to Tom Fool's tree. You can listen to this story as you walk. <music> Episode 6 Tom Fool and the Apprentice Carpenter Sir Ferdinand Pennington of Muncaster Castle had a problem. His daughter, Hellwise, had taken a shine to a young lad working on the estate, an apprentice carpenter, Called Joseph Fox. One evening, Hellwise eloped down to Ravenglass to a dance at the invitation of Jos. None too happy, Sir Ferdinand asked the jester, Tom Fool, for assistance. Tom knew this Jos Fox. A few months back, Tom had been at the inn at Ravenglass. Showing off one of his new tricks in preparation for an event at the castle. Juggling with cannonballs. In the middle of a tricky transition, Tom threw all three balls into the air. At this point, Joss Fox and his friends stumbled into the bar, making a racket and commotion, distracting Tom. The first cannonball fell to the ground. Tom looked down. The second and third cannonballs fell down on Tom's head and foot. (laughs) Ha ha! shouted Joss Fox. Looks like old Tom's come a cropper with the tools of his own trade. And everyone laughed. So on the night of the dance, Tom strode purposefully down to Ravenglass, found Hellwise, returned her to the castle, and then returned to teach Joss Fox a lesson. He toiled all night in the woodwork shed, and in the morning, a beautiful box, about a foot high, a foot wide, and a foot deep, was delivered. To Sir Ferdinand Pennington the note attached read In this box a little fox But your hen house it will not raid It's the head of the apprentice carpenter Come a cropper by the tools of his own trade And that wasn't Tom's only misdemeanour He would often take a dislike to castle visitors And give them false directions for travelling south He would climb his tree as they ventured out onto the treacherous sands of the estuary and watch and laugh and watch and laugh as they met their ends, following his directions. And by my fingers and thumbs, these stories are done! You can find all of the stories as standalone episodes, along with two bonus stories in series two of the Liar Liar podcast. Available to stream on Spotify and lots of other podcast sites, and available to download at cumbriansongs.co.uk. Thank you for listening to the Liar Liar podcast. This has been series two, Murderous Moncaster.